the end of the beginning. That's three sermons right there. Thank you, brother, for singing. Thank you for that voice, Lord. Thank you for the truths that were sung. And thank you that you, living Lord Jesus, are right here. Thank you for the way our hearts thrilled. As we heard again, you arose. Take these moments now, Lord, and make them powerful for yourself. Take my lips and speak through them. Take our minds and think through them. Take our wills and bend them to your own. And take our hearts, Lord Jesus, just as we responded to that singing. Take our hearts now and set them on fire with love for you as we respond to your word. We pray in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. Well now, I'm going to back up one of uh, Pastor Barry's announcements with a fatherly speech. You have in your service sheet, I want you to take it and put it in your hands before your eyes white piece of paper just like this. So all of you are looking inside your service sheet right now. It's got at the head of it, underneath the Christchurch logo, small group sign-up form. And then in capital letters, get connected. Here's what's happening for the next six weeks, beginning next Sunday. We are preaching a series of sermons with the overall title, What on Earth Am I Here For? Those sermon titles go with a book that we're encouraging you. If you're going to get in on all this, you need to go buy it. It's the title of the book, What on Earth Am I Here For? You can either go to our bookstore or go to any other bookstore and buy this book. It's, the author is Rick Warren. What on earth am I here for? And we are using this as an opportunity, not just to get you to read the book, which, by the way, once it's in your hand and you've read it, is another great book to pass on and give to maybe one of your searching or skeptical friends. Because the question, what on earth am I here for, is a question that all of us, one way or another, has in our lives. But we are also going to, week by week, discuss in small groups, some of them here at church, some of them in restaurants, some of them in homes, small groups discussing those sermons each week. So six weeks of sermons, six weeks you'll have read through this book, it's essentially six chapters and six weeks of small group experience. Some of you are already in small groups, and I'm working on the assumption that your small group will be following along with the rest of us. Most of you are not in small groups. That is a fact. And I'm speaking to you now as daddy of the flock here, as your shepherd. You need to get connected via this small group experience. I've already committed all the parish council 
and all our staff to be a part of this small group experience. Sign up to be either a host, whether you host it in a home or in a restaurant or here at the church, to host the group. If you've got a home that can easily host 10 or 15 people in such a small group, then uh, it would be good if you offered it. You can be a leader of a group without being the host of the group, or vice versa, a host of the group without being a leader. If you would like to be a leader, we can give you a brief training session. What you will be doing, because you will get a guide and a video to be shown in the small group experience, will be essentially facilitating discussion. You don't have to be a teacher. Teaching comes out of the reading, out of the video, and you facilitate the discussion, and the sermons will be backing all that up week by week. It's a great experience for us as a church. I personally want each one of you individually to get in on this. You need to get connected in this way so that you get to know some other people and they get to know you. I was counseling a couple yesterday afternoon who are getting married here in the next couple of weeks. Darling young couple, I said, who are your friends here? Well, it turns out it's probably just Pastor Barry and me. They're not connected. They've got each other. They're going to commit themselves to each other in marriage. But I said, I want you as a young couple to be a part of our young adult ministry here because the young adults are getting together in groups like this as well. So sign up to be either a host or a leader, or just a participant. Outside, in our commons area, you will find Pastor Bob Mason, who's heading up our small group ministry, and you can hand this in to him. Got it? I know you have. Some of you men are saying, no way, Jose. Because guys are the toughest draw in this business. Men get on the ball. Stop the cutting and running, playing the loner, get connected. That would go for turning up at the men's breakfast, getting into the canoe trip. Guys, we're on your tail, and we're going to pursue you. You've got to get connected. That's serious business. The other thing is this. Quite extraordinarily, we are going back on the radio... Word FM. You're going to get really excited in one moment. This week, September the 1st, and each weekday, 3.30 in the afternoon. So tune in and invite others to do the same. 3.30 every weekday, Word FM 101.5. Christ Church is back in the broadcasting business. Praise the Lord. So get in on that. Now for a sermon. We're celebrating Labor Day tomorrow. And our passage was chosen because it speaks about working and laboring for the Lord. 
1 Corinthians chapter 15, and the closing verse says this, always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not vain. If you turn to page six in your service sheet, you will find the larger text from which I'm going to be preaching. This year, Labor Day will be 120 years old as inaugurated by the U.S. Congress in 1894 that the first Monday of September would be Labor Day, honoring the working, laboring men and women of our country. The precursor to this, by about a decade, was a group by the name of the Knights of Labor. That's an interesting coalescence of word. To be a knight is to be honored. Knights were the noble warriors of the old world. And to be a knight of labor, a noble warrior in the labor movement. And a decade before, they had called on labor to, and the employers, to celebrate the working man and the honor of the labor force by having that first Monday of September. So 10 years later, the United States Congress got behind that and made it an official one-day holiday for the whole of the nation. So that's his history. That's why this is our Labor Day weekend. I know normally it's uh, the close of summer. You know, the pools shut down, kids are back in school, and everybody gets back to the normal routine outside of vacation and summer holidays. But it really is a celebration of labor. Now, you may be interested to know that the Bible always sees work and labor as an honorable employment. Now, obviously, we're speaking in terms of labor, the man or woman who's working with their hands, who puts on overalls to go to work, who's doing the sweaty laboring, or skilled laboring, as the case may be. I know all of you who do any other kind of work, and especially if you own your own business, if you're into medicine, whether you're a pharmacist, a nurse, or a doctor, you know you work. So it is a national holiday for the whole of the country. But what is being particularly honored is what we normally think of as the more menial task. Work is not dishonorable, and the normal sweaty hard work of the building of a house, the digging of a trench, although I do see we've got equipment that does all that brilliantly nowadays, but the laying of hard top on highways, working in a factory, making steel, putting a car together, cleaning up a church as beautiful as this one always looks, making our homes presentable, doing the gardening, making the beds, cooking the meals, cleaning the gutters, all work, the labor of our hands, in the Bible is seen as 
honorable. And listen to this. You know the commandment that says, six days shall you work, and on the seventh rest. The idea of a rest day comes right out of the Bible, that we need rest, we need a break, and we need a day to focus on the Lord and renew ourselves spiritually. That commandment normally goes to that issue, that there is a day that we set aside for the Lord and for our own rest and recreation. But the first part of the commandment is this, six days shalt thou work. Adam in the garden was called to go subdue the earth. Jesus himself was a carpenter. I love the bumper sticker I've seen from time to time. My boss is a Jewish carpenter. Paul the apostle, the author of the majority of the New Testament, never took a penny from any of the people he served spiritually except that he worked and as a tent maker, which was a craft, whether that's repairing sails or making tents, he earned his own income and spelled that out, especially to the church in Corinth. He worked with his hands to earn money in order to be free to serve God as that great preacher of the gospel and the author of so much of the New Testament. Work is never, ever considered in the Bible as something that's beneath anyone. In fact, slothfulness is one of the six or seven deadly sins. Sloth, laziness. The Bible in admonition of the lazy who sit around folding their hands, a little sigh here, a little sigh there. It's a very descriptive narrative in Proverbs chapter 6, describing the lazy, do-nothing person. It says of that person, go to the ant, thou sluggard, King James Version. The ant, always busy, running back and forth, feeding, nourishing, working. Go to the ants, thou sluggard, and learn. The Bible says if you won't work, you don't eat. The Bible is not into making it a slothful, easygoing business by some of us feeding others who can't be bothered to work. The idea that we could ever get rich enough to live decadently and have nothing to do except to drink our mint juleps, play golf, and watch the gardener mow the lawn and the maid clean up the house is not God's idea. Work is honorable. And once we get to know this living God who first created us and made us with that longing to be of consequence, do something of consequence, make a difference in the world, innately planted in the human soul and spirit, once we get to know that living God, we make it our ambition, says the scripture, to please him. 
So again, the scriptures are very clear. Let me give you references that you may want to jot down. Galatians chapter 6 and verse 9, as well as Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 6, speak about us working not as men-pleasers to make our boss happy, but to work as unto the Lord. My boss and your boss is a Jewish carpenter. And when we go to work, we first go to work, not just to earn an income and have a livelihood and provide for our family. It does go on to say that we should work in order to have more to give away to the poor and the needy. But we go to work in order to honor God and do our work in such a way that he is our first boss. And we do it to please him above all else. One of the amazing verses of our Bible, let me turn you to it, Hebrews chapter 6. In verse 10 it says this, God is not unjust. He will not forget your work and the love you have shown him as you have helped his people and continue to help them. God is not unjust. It's not lost on him. He will not forget your work and the love you have shown him in doing that work is what's implicit. And in that work you have been able to help other people and not just yourself. Verse 12 of Hebrews chapter 6. We do not want you to become lazy. The NIV translation I have in my hand. But to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit what has been promised. In other words... Put yourselves to work on the basis of God's promises, his presence in your life, the fact that he has won you by his death on the cross, as we heard so brilliantly sung, and taken possession of you by his spirit, alive and in you as you've put your trust in him. If I'm describing you, then scripture has a word to you, to be energetic and passionate about your service of the Lord in all that you do. One of my life verses, and I've got about three of them. Sometimes it sneaks over to four. But one of them is Ecclesiastes chapter 9 and verse 10. It says this, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. Go for it. Like Nike, just do it. Our lives are not our own, says the scripture. We have been bought with a price, the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. So your career isn't just a means of livelihood. And whatever you set your hand to is not just something you enjoy for the pleasure of it, or the product that's the end result of it, but you are serving the Lord in it. It's amazing, when I first came to know the Lord, 
and I was 18 years of age, I lived for soccer. I was a pretty good soccer player. I wasn't brilliant, wasn't world class. Manchester United wasn't looking to sign me up. But I did play in a world, excuse me, in a nationwide tournament at what is three levels down, what we call the A level in soccer, and got to an all England final. One of my jobs here when I first came to the USA was to coach a college soccer team. When I got to know Jesus at 18, I got the message somewhere, somehow, that my playing soccer week by week was my opportunity to bear witness to Christ and play that game to the best of my ability to honor him. So as we'd line up on the field before the whistle blew and the ball was put in motion, I would look at the player down the other end of the field with whom I would be spending a lot of time that afternoon and pray for him and pray that I might play a good game and a good strong game, play the game like the man I knew myself to be, the soccer player I knew myself to be, but fair, firm, strong, in honor of Jesus. I love it when our athletes, you often hear it with the golf community, there are any number of golfers. I got to have uh, dinner last year with Bubba Watson. Not with a thousand other people, just Bubba and me and two or three friends and his caddy. I love it that he's won the Masters twice now, one of the few to win it two times in a row, and he gives honor to Jesus. He loves Jesus. His caddy loves Jesus. His caddy holds his feet to the fire concerning his walk for the Lord, Bubba's walk for the Lord, his presence on the golf course, how he behaves himself, and even off the golf course. There we were, dining together. Bubba's first motivation is not the cup or the money. It's to honor Jesus. Is that so with you and your career, whether you're still a student? Whatever your job. One of the girls I dated in England back when I was a young man, clearly didn't marry her. I married an American girl. This young lady, Esther Buck, she worked at a Christian conference center called Cape and Ray Hall. Quite a famous Christian leader by the name of Major Ian Thomas started that ministry right after the Second World War to reach the students and the younger population of Europe. I used to take young people to Cape and Ray Hall up in the Lake District of England. Had an old cobblestone cart courtyard, was a mansion-like building, surrounded by the beautiful Lake District country. Great place to go for a week with young people. And this young lady, as she was then, Esther Buck, was working with Mrs. Thomas, the wife of the guy who established this expanding ministry. It's here in the USA. They have a conference center in Colorado in the Rockies. His wife was making beds for the next group of students coming in and cleaning the bedroom 
alongside my girlfriend, Esther Buck. And Joan Thomas, definitely a sophisticated lady, cleaning rooms for a bunch of high school students coming in, said to Esther, let's clean this room and make this bed as if Jesus was staying here tonight. That takes what looks like a menial servant task and dignifies it. We're doing it for the Lord. So whether you're shoveling snow or pulling weeds or whatever you do, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus if you own him as your Savior and Lord. That's the admonition and encouragement of the Scriptures. Now, interestingly, I'm out of time, but I can't stop there. You see, in this passage, what you have is a comment that puts it all in perspective. If you look in your service sheet, 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 58, that last verse, it says, therefore, my dear brothers, and the therefore, the therefore, whenever you see it, you have to ask yourself, what is it therefore? And what it points back to is the victory of Christ over death and over the sting of death, which is sin, and over the power of sin, which is the law, which holds us accountable. So that all of us, when we come before God, are guilty. And along the way, as you have come to the Lord, I would almost guarantee that when you first heard about him, you didn't want to get too close to him. You didn't want to be accountable to him. You may be struggling with this right now because you know that you're a sinner and sin in the presence of God gets you into trouble, deep trouble, because the wages of sin is death. And none of us wants to, comp- in any sense, compound our problems by acknowledging that there is a holy God who runs everything and to whom we are accountable. We don't want to deal with him, so we pretend he's not there, or we just use him as a call in line whenever we're in trouble, but we're not about to surrender our lives to him. We're not about to acknowledge that he's loved us enough to send his son Jesus to pull that sting out of death, to satisfy the law on our behalf to pay for our sin and our guilt with his own blood and to purchase for us a place in heaven, our ultimate destination, at the cost of his life laid down. The therefore is harping back to what God has done for us in Christ. So the verse immediately preceding what we've been looking at says, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And that is a present participle in the original language who goes on giving us the victory, daily gives us victory, so that our lives aren't trampled by the circumstances that invade us and the guilt that all of us feel in the face of sin or the weight of the law which none of us has been able to keep and be holy as God is holy, Because Christ has taken care of that. And if you know that, and you've responded to him and surrendered to him, therefore, on account of that, on account of what he's done for you, on account of who he's made you, 
on account of the hope that he's given you, on account of his presence in your life and the price he paid to be there, on account of that, dear brothers, stand firm, let nothing move you, that is, be immovable, always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord. And that's not just playing church, as we've discussed. Because you know that your labor is not vain, it's not for nothing, when it's done in the name of the Lord. He is just, he, he doesn't miss a move you make, a step you take. He knows. So if you own that Lord Jesus as yours, then this Labor Day weekend, along with me, our staff, your families, devote yourself to him and all that you do, that it may be for him, that in everything you honor him. That's the Christian deal. Let's bow our heads and pray together. Well, Lord Jesus, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for you will last. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for you will last. Therefore, Lord, help us to do all things, great and small, significant and apparently insignificant, to do it all for you. We pray this for your name's sake. Amen.